Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Coming up in just a few minutes, yet another data hack, one with a twist. Once again, it points out how careful you have to be, what information you share where. And coming up yet later, we are such a polarized nation. And when I think about how polarized we are, is there any issue that symbolizes that more than the switch to daylight saving time? I want to talk about that later. And I want to talk about something really uh, unsettling for people who travel often, even people who travel infrequently by air. It is the insecurity that goes with trusting your life to the pilots in the cockpit and the machine you're flying in. And so here we are four months apart having the second crash of a new kind of aircraft. And this is something that is rare in history. It happened in the 1950s. There was a a British-designed jet that, without going into too much history, uh, was looked at as a marvel of its day and ended up being a commercial failure following several crashes with the plane. It turned out that its design was structurally unsafe. Then in the 70s, there was a problem with a a three-engine jet that after a crash in Chicago led to a grounding of that fleet for a while, and the aircraft program never regained the strength that it had before. And now we have the world's most popular jet model, the 737, in its latest version, Uh, that is called the Max series, having two crashes, uh, one in Indonesia, one in Africa, four months and I think a week apart, both crashing under circumstances that are extremely abnormal for an aircraft at the stage of flight that each of these were at. And it's led to a lot of fear. So far... Several airlines and two countries have grounded any MAX jets. Uh, It is a derivative of the 737, which has been flying since 1966, 8, whatever, and is considered to be the workhorse of the skies. But this newest version has um, obviously some teething issues that are costing people's lives, and For those of you who fly only in the United States, the chances that you would be on a MAX are extremely, extremely small. There are very few in service at this point in the United States, uh, principally with American United and Southwest, but in all three cases, tiny portions of their fleets. To this moment, none of the three have decided to ground their maxes. I've flown on a max, and uh, as a passenger, I thought it was a great experience, but obviously I would not have thought so if I was on one that had a serious mechanical problem. I wouldn't know what to think if it was on one that went down. But 
I want you to know that if you are a nervous flyer and dealing with the unknowns and uncertainties of this or something that you can't handle, then you should know this, that when you go to book an airline flight, one of the pieces of information available to you that you may not ever look at is what kind of plane will you be flying on? And when you're booking a flight, you can see that. And it will be usually clear enough what it is, or there may be a glossary on the website that will explain. Or you can go to a website called SeatGuru.com, put in the airline name and flight number you're flying on, and it will show you what kind of equipment you'll be on, and you'll be able to know then and there. And this is something because the with the Ethiopian crash, the voice recorder and flight data recorder have both been recovered. There may be some clarity quicker than normal where they're able to decipher if there's a pattern of problems with the design of the aircraft that has led to the problems that have led to two crashes in such a short period of time and in so few minutes of initial flight of a plane. So uh, I want you to know that for me, I, I am not in any way, shape, form, or fashion someone who has any expertise at all in issues of safety involving any kind of machinery. I have no science mind at all. But I can tell you that flying is pretty much the safest form of transportation that exists. And that because of the hyper-focus and attention and how essential it is for Boeing to get this right, that the answers will come uh, fairly quickly. And if there is, in fact, a, a flaw in design, it will be corrected as quickly as possible. And if there is an unsafe factor with planes operating, if that becomes clear, those planes will not operate until they're modified. So as far as I'm concerned, I, I flew... Yesterday, I flew last week, I fly again in two weeks, and I fly generally I somewhere in the air about 30 weeks a year, and there's nothing about this that changes my feelings about flying anywhere. James joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, James. How are you doing? This is so funny. I cannot... Uh, we're having a technical problem just like we had two weeks ago today where, there we go, James. Hey, Clark. How are you? Thanks for taking my call and for sharing your insights. Sure. It's great to have you here. I can't believe we corrected the technical problem in like seven seconds. I'm a lucky man. How did we do that? <laughs> you have a good staff. I do. I do. Well, great. How can I serve you, James? Well, I'm looking to buy a three- to four-year-old luxury vehicle that's been rated number four by Consumer Reports for reliability. Unfortunately, due to the limited availability in my area, I'm likely going to have to buy it out of state and then drive it back, potentially cross-country. So other than your usual advice of having it inspected by an independent mechanic, is there anything else I should know about, or is buying a, a car out of state just a bad idea to begin with? No, not automatically at all. And because of the success of eBay Motors, there are now um, mechanics that you can hire 
pretty much anywhere in the country to do an inspection of a vehicle for you that is not where you live. Okay. And usually you pay for a luxury car, $150 seems to be kind of the going rate for an inspection to be done. And so you can have it checked out. That doesn't mean you're going to get there and you're going to like the vehicle because particularly with a used vehicle, they each have their own history and it's hard to know sight unseen that it's going to be okay. I, I bought a vehicle uh, back in 2005 before people really did that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I bought a vehicle elsewhere in the country and I couldn't hire somebody over the internet then to inspect it. So I called an independent shop that repaired that brand and hired a mechanic. Uh, and it was it was more expensive than it is today. It cost me, I think, a couple hundred dollars to hire a mechanic to go check it out for me. And then I had to transport it back to where I am. But it worked out really well by having it inspected. Okay. And so... That is a key step, but the thing I would do first, actually, that step zero, is if you're going to buy a car remotely, you buy either one-time access or buy a short-term subscription to Carfax and run a Carfax on the VIN, and that way you may find something that keeps you from going any further right then and there. Carfax is not enough having the inspection done is essential, but the Carfax, if something's bad on it, you wouldn't even get as far as paying for an inspection. Because I was planning on finding a car, flying out to wherever it is, looking it over, seeing if I liked it, and if I did, then having it inspected. But this thing with eBay Motors sounds like that would certainly be a cheaper option. Yeah, you know, it's possible that that you would have it inspected, the mechanic would say it's all mechanically fine, you'd get there and find some reason you didn't like it. Um, And that could happen, but I think it's better to have the inspection done first before you go out. Okay. You also, if you don't want to drive it all the way across the country, you can hire a car transport service. Like you can go on U-SHIP, letter U-S-H-I-P.com, Right. And hire somebody to transport it on a car transport across the country for you, unless you like the idea of having a road trip. I love the idea of a road trip. Okay. Well, then one-way tickets are so cheap these days. You're absolutely great to, uh, to do the road trip if the vehicle checks out. And then you'd be in a position to be able to... Uh, to to, you know, to have a long test drive in the car. You'd already own it at that point. But anyway, I'd like to talk with Michelle now, Joel. Michelle's with me. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Clark. Thank you for taking my call. Certainly, Michelle. Um, I have a question. Um, I'd like to introduce my college-age boys into the world of financial awareness. So um, I was interested in trying to see if there was a mutual fund or an ETF that would be a good start for them that we can start them with that they can take over. I like this. We... If you want it to be both a way to invest and a way to teach the concept of diversification, mm-hmm. I like the STAR fund from Vanguard, S-T-A-R. Okay. 
S-T-A-R, okay. The STAR fund requires $1,000 minimum to open the account. And what the STAR fund is, is all in one account. It's an ultra low cost, no commissions to go in, very, very low management fee. But it diversifies money widely. And so one of the hardest concepts for someone to get at any age with investing is the value of diversifying, spreading your money out in different types of investments to lower the risk, particularly in the intermediate term, short and intermediate term. Exactly. And so mm-hmm. this star fund I like is both uh, basically a teaching vehicle that if your teenager reads the prospectus that comes with the fund, mm-hmm. it, the star fund prospectus it's, I mean, they're all written so dryly because lawyers get involved with the process. Yeah, sure. But mm-hmm. if you don't fall asleep reading it, mm-hmm. the prospectus does a great job of explaining the underlying philosophy about how and why you diversify. And so it, it's like lifelong teaching at the same time as you start to save money. And how do you access the store funds? If you go to vanguard.com. Okay. And just under the search of funds, put in STAR. Okay. And the STAR fund will come up, and it has the approachable minimum of $1,000. But I wanted to ask you something about your teenager. Sure. Does your son work? Yes, yes. So if he's working, I'd want whatever he does to be inside a Roth IRA. Okay. Because then that allows for tax-free growth and ultimately down the road tax-free spending. He's um, he's a college student, so he's not working full time. Um, That's okay, as long as he over the course of a year earns how much money? Maybe twelve hundred, thirteen hundred. Sure, that's perfect. Okay. That would make okay. him eligible to do the thousand in the star okay. fund to open it. Just got to have thousand dollars of earned income in the okay. year. Mm-hmm. And as long as he's got that, he's good, and he's able to put the money in the star fund inside the Roth. I mean, as an alternative, it doesn't have the same teaching, but probably better as a long-term choice is the Vanguard Target Retirement Fund, probably like year 2060 for him as a teenager, where the money automatically, the mix of investments changes over the decades to become more and more age appropriate, but either would be a great starting point for him. The important thing when I talk about data breaches, problems with our identity, our information, is that I not overwhelm you to the point where you just give up. And so I've been thinking about how I was going to talk about the newest well-spread data breach, and I've really come to this in today's Clark Rageous moment. You may or may not have heard there's a database used by 900 different colleges that tracks applicants and all the personal information of those applicants. Well, hackers apparently have figured out how to break into that, and students from reported only three colleges so far are being contacted by the hackers, being told that they will ransom their personal information back to them or they will publish unflattering things that are in their college files or college application files. 
And so you reach a point where you hear about these breaches and you feel like, what am I going to do? I should just throw in the towel and know that I'm never going to be safe. Okay, so let's face it. The hackers are very determined and find vulnerabilities in systems. The most important thing for you to do, rather than shrug your shoulders and give up, is to take simple precautions. Think about what I've said about medical. There's nothing specifically college students could have done here, but half of all breaches are with medical. And what's the most important thing you do with any medical form? Always leave the social security number blank. Never fill that in. It's just one example of a simple defense. Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. Our main website, Clark.com. Our deal site, ClarkDeals.com. Deal or no deal, daylight saving time. Most of us in the country switched our clocks forward yesterday, if we remembered to, although most people now with so much electronics in our home and cell phones and all that, it automatically happens, so you don't have an excuse for being an hour late anymore. But people gripe about it. They hate the time change, and I look forward to it so much every year because I, I crave that light. I crave it. And I think about when I had the, the great privilege to be in Norway one July to see the monument to our own Joel where in the village where his family's from there's a big sign the ancestral home of not, Joel. Not yet, not no, yet. Maybe no, one of these days. No. Anyway, and in July it was light pretty much all night and it just you got to twilight in the middle of the night. I remember my wife and I were running on the uh, Olympic warm-up track in Lillehammer at 1.30 in the morning one night because you just, you never wanted to sleep because it was just light all the time and how how invigorating that was and how exciting it was to have that light all the time. Uh, the opposite is I've been to Sweden in the middle of winter when it never really got light, so... I'm not saying I want that, but the thing is, I love having this light into the evening. You can be so much more active. You can go for a walk, go for a run, do whatever would be fun to do because you've got that light in that hour that we spring forward gives that to you. But people hate it. I asked among our crew, and we meet as a, as a group, all the functions we have, TV, radio, our web team, our off-air team, we all get together and talk each day about what's going on. And when I brought up daylight saving time, I was met with snarls and frowns and all this. And then I said, show of hands, who hates daylight saving time? And almost every hand went up. It's like, what? An hour. It's an hour. So it may take you a day to adjust. That's why they change it on Saturday night, because Sunday, I mean, Sunday's, just, what difference does it make if an hour changes on Sunday? So we should enjoy this. And I, I remember when we had year-round daylight saving time, and I love that. A lot of people really hated the morning darkness, but I mean, come on. 
Think about it. Think about it. Let's say you, you could use a little more exercise in your life. You now have that hour to go out and walk. You like to uh, throw a, a ball or whatever. You've got that time. You want to, you're a golfer. Are there any golfers left? But anyway, you want to go play some, uh, maybe nine holes of golf. You can do that because of daylight saving time. So I don't get all the negativity. What's it all about? And if it were up to me, it would be what Florida wants to do, which is go to year-round, the sunshine state, year-round daylight saving time. And then you never have to worry about that hour going away. But for me, that first weekend in November... When we go to standard time, ugh, gloom and doom. I mean, gloom and doom for November, December, January, February, cold weather, darkness, dreary. I mean, these are my eight months that have just started. Trice is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Trice. Hey, how's it going? Good. So tell me, pro or anti daylight saving time? Oh, definitely love the hour ahead. So the the hour time change didn't bother you so much? No, I'm I've been ready for it since November. <laughs> so how do you feel about what Florida wants to do, which is just leave it forward all year? Oh, if we could do that, we that'd be awesome. Well, we we will see, and you know we got. The naysayers that never go to daylight time, Alaska, no, I'm sorry, um, Arizona, Hawaii, trying to remember who else doesn't do daylight time at all. But anyway, that's off the topic of what you want to talk about. What's going on, Trice? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I have a question. So uh, between a house buying between family members, um, my dad owns the house and I'm currently living in it with my wife and we want to buy it from them and I didn't know what the best option was or or what to do I've looked up everything in the book will your dad finance it for you uh yes he did with the home equity line it's not his main house but it's just a secondary to help us out to get it real fast so um let me see if I understand that so he took out a home equity line on the house Yes. All right. So that's not really what I'm thinking of because, see, if he owned the house free and clear, it's really easy for him to sell it to you and to be the bank at the same time that you would pay every month. Yeah, yeah. But if he sells it to you, at the time he'd sell it to you, he would have to pay off that home equity line. Right. And I didn't know because we bought it for about seventy thousand less of what it's worth now. So now you say you bought it, so I need to understand who actually owns it today. Uh, he does. Okay, so you, so you have an agreed to price, but yes, you haven't actually just, bought it. Yeah, he he bought it with the home equity line, and I just paid the whatever the mortgage or the interest is on that equity line. But he's legally the owner. Yes. But you want to be the true owner and you want to buy it. Right, I do, yeah. All right. So in, are you in a position 
to be able to qualify for a mortgage? Uh, yes, I am. So the cleanest, simplest way to do it, if, if your dad owned it free and clear, there would be a much simpler process. But since he doesn't, the simplest way for you to do it is for you to qualify for a mortgage and you have a traditional real estate closing and you just pay him, you know, the lender pays him the amount agreed upon and he's out, the home equity line is paid off at that time and you were the owner of the property paying the mortgage to whoever the lender is you take. Okay, and, and it doesn't have to be for what the house is worth. It can be for, I guess, what we bought it at. It doesn't matter the amount of what he sells it to me. So that is a or, great question, and um, the IRS is not on the line. So <laughs> if the purchase price is one that is considered to be a reasonable purchase price, you know, within reason, you know, if he was selling it to you for, uh, let's say, half of its real value, that wouldn't qualify. But, you know, there's always disagreement about what is fair market value on a property. Mm-hmm. If it's a reasonable amount you're paying versus the market, then no one's really going to challenge it. If, okay. if you were buying it for uh, a very small amount versus its real value, then the IRS might really uh, get unhappy and consider right. it to be a gift from your dad to you. Okay. Is it is it an outrageous difference? Uh, well, it's about seventy thousand on, uh, on a total value of of what it's worth uh, versus what he could potentially what we bought it for. Okay. So well, you said you keep saying bought it for, but you technically for, haven't actually bought it for. So you, yeah, what what he got the home equity line for. All right. So at the time that that he did that and he did the home equity line, how much more did he pay for it than what the home equity line is that he took out on it? Uh, it let's see. Um, I, I don't. We got it for one hundred and seven is what we got it for. Um, so I'm not real sure, but of course it's on our taxes. It says it's worth one seventy five. Okay. In order to do this the right way, what you're going to need to do is you're going to first want to meet with a real estate lawyer to have it drawn properly. But what will happen in a case like this that would keep you completely clear of any conflict with the IRS is you would do a first mortgage that you would take out on your own and you're Dad, as the seller, provides seller financing for the second mortgage that would be for the difference between market value and the amount that you would be financing. Okay. And then your dad can, because your dad really wants to do a nice deal for you, your dad can forgive either, uh, depending on how it's structured, fifteen or 30000 of that uh, $68,000 difference each year. Uh, as a gift. As a gift. You're allowed to give gotcha. fifteen yeah. grand to an individual each year without any gift tax implications at all. Okay. So a real estate lawyer has had this kind of situation many times, 
and it's gotcha. all just structuring it right keeps you out of harm's way. Yep, and that's that's what we want. So that's. Do you know one? Do you know anybody who's is a real estate lawyer? Uh, I don't. He may. Yeah, your dad. I, I, if your dad's done enough transactions, he'll know a real estate lawyer. You go meet with him or her. Explain the exact circumstance you explained to me, what you're trying to accomplish, and they will be able to do that. And then you don't say up front that your dad's forgiving that each year, but that is what your dad would do each year. And then you're completely safe on any issues moving forward with the IRS. Chris is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Chris. Nice to be with you, Clark. I appreciate your help today. Well, great to have you here, Chris. You have um, more than one place you live, is that right? Yeah. Yes, I have a situation where I work at a remote location three days a week, and it's about an hour and 20 minutes from home. So we do have a second uh, location, and it's kind of in a remote area, so I don't have a lot of options as far as Internet. And what I was wondering, I'm wanting to cut the cord on pay TV and go to an Internet-based television system. And my question is, since I'll have two different uh, Wi-Fi systems, was that going to create a problem if I go to one of the other Internet-based TV providers? No. Uh, It depends on who you're with. I said no. It depends on who you're with. Because each uh, tells you, as part of buying service from them, how many streams you're allowed to have going at once. How many family members do you have at the main location? Two. All right. (laughs) Well, you're fine then. Because uh, Sling has a service, which is the oldest, Sling.com, I guess it's the oldest of the streaming services, that has uh, one service that allows only one stream at a time, but another that allows three streams at a time. Right. YouTube TV. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I've I've evaluated all of them. I kind of am leaning towards the view, the PlayStation view would be. Oh, my, my choice. There are people who love the PlayStation View product. How many streams do they allow? I believe five. So as long as that's allowed, you're fine to be at more okay. than one physical address. And okay. two okay. of you watching what they want to watch at one place and you at the other. I just didn't know if whether having two different internet providers would put a kink in the process. And apparently it doesn't. No, that makes no difference. So okay, that's okay. not a problem. Like in our family, we use YouTube TV, and uh-huh. my daughter, who lives in California, watches the stream in California while we're watching wherever we are, and there's no problem Excellent. with that. So you said, great. but I wanted to ask you something else. You said two internet services as well. So you have a you're paying for a monthly internet service where you where you are at the remote. Worksite? Yes, and I don't have many options. It backs right up to a national park, and we don't have many options at all. All right, so then this is the question I have for you. Can you get a signal with one of the cell phone players? Oh, yes, yes. So with many of them, you can have unlimited uh, data for streaming and not have to have a separate internet connection where you're living that you would be able to stream everything you want 
through your phone. And then there are uh-huh. all these ways you can project what's on your phone onto the TV. Okay. I hadn't thought of that. And that way, at least you avoid the cost of having to have two internet services. I mean, he wants to pay for having two of those when one is your main residence, the other just your remote spot. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, this is from Have We Lost Our Minds? This is crazy. I was reading a story in the Washington Post about people ending up in trouble with the law fighting about crab legs. This is just news of the weird. And so the story is, and it was something when I brought it up in our pre-show meeting, people were just going on and on fully animated about when you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet that has crab legs, the, the war that goes on over the crab legs. I mean, who knew that crab legs were worth getting into a fist fight over, and going to jail over. But people go berserk when they want their crab legs. There aren't any out on the buffet. They put crab legs out, and people in a feeding frenzy rush the buffet table, push and shove, and fight over the crab legs. Okay, so there's so much here I don't even know what to say. But the first thing is, if you're that much into crab legs, when a seafood restaurant has one of those all-you-can-eat promotions, go there. The crab legs are probably going to be better anyway because it's what they do at a seafood restaurant. But fighting over food? You know, it's not like someone who goes to an all-you-can-eat buffet isn't getting enough calories, isn't getting enough food. But to me, it goes to the core of basic decency and respect for each other that we not get into a tizzy and fight over food. Food fights over crab legs. We got to let go of that and just take one at a time so that there's enough to go around. Seriously, you're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.